One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I think it's about resisting the focus on individualism that is so rampant in our culture and our cultural messaging and I think can make the experience of being alive quite lonely sometimes and actually by being in nature it allows us to remember maybe that we are nature and that we are intimately connected to a much vaster world and landscape around us. Hello and welcome to another episode of On Jimmy's Farm with me Jimmy Doherty. This is the podcast where we discuss environmental issues and try and give everyone a slice of the good life along the way. I've just popped up to check on my orchards because I did have some sheep in here and they are just horrific when it comes to ripping the bark off of my lovely apple trees. Uh, I just, uh, we often keep the rams close by and they, they got in. No, that looks all right. Love, we've got some lovely old varieties in here. And of course, all the apple blossom is still out at the moment. And, you know, a lot of people really appreciate the beautiful flowers. But what I see is the, the next generation of fruit. So I can see the honeybees coming in and pollinating already along here. So every flower pollinated, hopefully, hopefully will be a lovely, juicy apple. And some of these old varieties you just don't get in the supermarket anymore. Like great big cooking apples, Lane's, Prince Albert. And then next door, I've got some big cherry trees and they've already set their fruit. You can see these tiny little cherries appearing. God, I love it, it's so exciting because it, it's just, you know, the start of what's gonna happen and you watch these fruits develop throughout the season and finally you get to pick them. That's if the birds don't get them first when it comes to the cherries. Now on today's episode, We've got a fantastic guest, and, and that's Lily Cole, and she is a model and an environmental campaigner. Um, we have a really great chat, and the thing I love about Lily is her positivity, because when it comes to a lot of these environmental issues that we are all facing, it all seems to be total doom and gloom. But Lily really thrives on positivity to make positive change and I think that's what we need in the world at the moment there's so much doom and gloom around we need a little bit of positivity for us to get over some of these big challenges so I hope you enjoy this episode and I'll see you all back here in the orchard right let's keep those sheep out Lily Cole thank you so much for joining me my pleasure thanks for having me on now, I want to have a good old chat with you about the work that you're doing at the moment, your new book and your fantastic podcast. But I want to go right to the beginning, where it all started and your interest in the environment and your activity to promote 
what we can all do to protect the environment? Because most people associate you with the world of fashion. So were you a model first, then an activist, or have you always been an activist? That's a good question. Um, I don't think anyone's ever put it that bluntly. Was I a model or an activist first, or a human being? (laughs) (laughs) Um, The most important role. Yeah, I think I definitely had the kind of seedings of activism before I started working in fashion. I started working in fashion when I was 14. There's a picture I put in my book of me doing a kind of anti-fur campaign, I think, age about eight. I mean, I was doing it at my house, so it wasn't to a big audience. It was to my mum and my sister as a sort of photo shoot. But that sort of indicates the fact that I had strong opinions from a young age. And then, yeah, the modelling sort of happened accidental. Because it's quite interesting, I think, Lily, is that the fact that when you've got that interest that's in you, it's always there. I think that kinship with nature, a strong belief in something is always there. Whatever happens, it'll always come to the surface, no matter what career path you took. Mm. But I love the idea of you having a little sign round your neck mm-hmm. and that this whole anti-fur message at such a young age. Was it quite difficult? Well, sorry to intercept you you there, but do you know what's interesting? I was listening to the episode you did with Jamie Oliver and you talk about your own kind of draw to nature from a very early age. And it was making me reflect that even though my activism, I, I didn't think of myself as an activist, but even though I had strong opinions at a young age about animal rights or human rights, if I'd see stuff on the news, I didn't have any environmental awareness And I don't think I had much respect for nature because I was growing up in London and I thought nature was pretty boring. (laughs) I think that was my, um, (laughs) I was much more interested in like the city. Yeah. And it wasn't until I was a teenager and I was lucky enough to start traveling through my work through, you know, the fashion and the way that fashion took me to different places around the world that I suddenly started to open my eyes to like, oh, wow, nature can actually be quite incredible. And that love affair started to grow. And I think that's interesting that that actually came later to me that love and respect. And I reflect on that, thinking about people who grow up in urban environments. I mean, did you grow up in an urban environment or were you in a very nature-based environment? No, I did. My mum and dad are from London originally and we, we moved out to rural Essex. But I firmly believe that a love of nature is something that we all have that's fairly in- inherent in our makeup, but we then put away as we grow up. Mm. You know, we then go, right, let's stop playing with sticks and let's stop making dams and rivers or wandering, looking up at trees and all those sort of childhood things that you do, the fascination with nature, we put that away when we get into music and clothes and go through the teenage years. And I always think that's a shame that we do that. But then some of us then rediscover the importance of nature and reconnect. What was the point when you suddenly went, it's so important? I'm getting provocative there because I actually would challenge you on that in the sense that even though I agree that I think an innate love of nature is probably biologically wired into us because we've spent tens of thousands of years and hundreds of thousands of years roaming in nature as a species. I think as a kid growing up in a very urban environment in London, there wasn't a kind of immediate love of nature that I then repressed growing up. It was just that I didn't have the exposure to allow me to recognise it, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's interesting. Of course, we went on like camping trips. I'm not saying we didn't see any nature, but it wasn't enough of a kind of active part of my life that I would like had a love that I then repressed. It's just that I wasn't really exposed, I think, enough to make me realise the love. And I think about it quite often now as supporting a campaign called Nature's Premium, which is about trying to take city kids into nature, because I think that's such an important component here is that giving kids access to nature allows us to, from an earlier age, maybe identify with what we're trying to save in the first place. 
It's interesting you say that because I think that it is hardwired into us because it's our natural environment. But the idea of not being exposed to things that, say, kids in the countryside would be, then you don't have that immediate connection. I do see there's a, there is a difference between when we have school trips come to the farm from inner cities to school trips that we have from just down the road or rural areas. Mm. There is a familiarity and... What's the difference? Well, the kids are more familiar and comfortable with the great outdoors than urban kids. There's definitely that element. Or the urban kids might be a bit more scared of the cows or the pigs or or the other animals that we have. Or, or even what's in the woods, what's lurking behind there. You know, mm. they, they think there's some sort of big beast going to jump out. But... I think the importance of getting children into nature is vital. You have to get young people to connect with nature. It was really interesting. I have a six-year-old daughter and the first few years of her life, we were living in London and we then moved out to Sussex. And I remember when we first moved out, she found nature really boring. And it's not that she hadn't been exposed to nature before. Of course she had, but like living in it day on day, I remember like there was a kind of sense of it being a bit boring. And then that very quickly dissipated and she sort of transformed from this from one kid to another, to a very, like, became so into nature. And it was kind of interesting to see that transition happen. And for myself, also being in Sussex, it was only a few years ago that I saw the bluebells there. I don't know if you've ever gone to Sussex in the spring and seen the kind of carpets of bluebells. Incredible. And I was probably like 30 years old when I first saw it, and I couldn't believe it. I was like, how has this existed all of my life, a few hours away from where I was growing up? And I just had no idea you know, like that this like wonder of the world was here on my doorstep and I just didn't see it. But that's one of those cases of the more you look, the more you see. The idea of kids going, nature is boring. And I suppose because we live in a world where it's screens and magazines and instant gratification, everything's fairly immediate with nature. I suppose when you look at it, of afar, it's just a green space or you might see a bird and it's damp, it's wet, it could be cold, it's muddy. But actually, the more you look, when you peer into that tangled undergrowth and then all of a sudden you see these amazing insects. And I remember looking down a microscope at little tiny parasitic wasps I collected and it looked just like a pirate's treasure chest that had been opened full of emeralds and rubies with the colours of these tiny little wasps. Mm. And I think that's what nature's about. The more you peer into it and pull back the layers the more incredible it becomes mm. that's funny you use that example it makes me think of i don't know if you saw a lot of like victorian jewelry they used to actually use beetles yeah as jewels like i once had a vintage ring that was a green beetle shell was in place of a jewel because it really looks like a jewel yeah they are incredibly beautiful and what's really interesting with some of the beetles as well it's not really pigment it's structural pigment so it's mm -hmm. the structure of the carapace that reflects the light that gives all this sort of amazing color mm -hmm. so with sort of the love of nature you have now then i mean how important is it to your your mental health as well and connected with green spaces i think it's pretty critical i mean if i'm going through a kind of challenge or like slumping my mental health there are a few kind of tools I can use, yoga, meditation, eating well, seeing friends, and nature is like top of that list. It doesn't mean by itself it can fix everything, but it feels like a really important component. And I, I write about it a bit towards the end of my book, Who Cares Wins, because I see it as a little bit of a sort of paradox maybe that we're in collectively, that the kind of collective disconnect from nature that's happened in recent centuries, especially decades, maybe has been part and parcel of driving some of the kind of high rates of mental health issues 
that we have. I, I mean, not the only element, but I think it's one of the elements. And because we have a kind of astoundingly high mental health issues in quote developed countries. And then in a kind of paradoxical way, I think that not having a kind of balanced mental health can also exacerbate the crisis because it can make us further disconnect from nature and maybe make choices that are not always in nature's best interest. Obvious example might be something like retail therapy, the idea of using consumerism to sort of fill a void and putting too much emphasis on maybe material values. But that the cure, this kind of the symptom is the cure, that by going back to nature and rekindling a love of nature, we might find that we're happier and also environmentally healthier as a society. So I think it's a really important area to look at. I think you're so right. And I see nature as sometimes for people reconnecting with it is a salvation. Mm -hmm. Or it can be as simple as something just as as a respite from a really busy day. And that could just be a walk in the park that just de-stresses you. Mm -hmm. But that reconnecting is really important. I do think, though, do you think there's an element with the environmental crisis that we're going through at the moment with climate change and loss of biodiversity, that when we see it as a negative thing on the news all the time, so many of us almost want to put our head in the sand and not engage with it. Go, oh, I I can't be dealing with all this stress all the time. Oh, for sure. And I mean, there's huge mental health issues coming out of the climate crisis. Eco-anxiety, eco-grief. I interviewed a few psychologists for my book and podcast who have all said that they're seeing a high increase in clients who are suffering from eco-anxiety. But I think, as I said, I think still the symptom is the cure and that going back to nature and community is so important. I mean, firstly, it's like there's lots of uh, studies that show that being in nature improves mental health, improves mindfulness, blah, blah, blah. But also I think it's about resisting the focus on individualism that is so rampant in our culture and our cultural messaging. And I think can make the experience of being alive quite lonely sometimes. And actually by being in nature, it allows us to remember maybe that we are nature and that we are intimately connected to a much vaster world and landscape around us. And I think that sense of connection is really helpful in terms of mental health. There's a really wonderful activist called Elizabeth Watuti, who did a speech at the opening of COP26, where she called on leaders to open their hearts. And it was such a simple message, but her whole work is around reconnecting with nature. She takes kids in Nairobi out into nature to reconnect and works with the Wangari Foundation, who won the Nobel Peace Prize for the Greenbelt Movement, which empowered women across Africa, originally across Kenya and then across Africa to plant trees and develop sustainable incomes from trees and was all about empowering women and also connection to nature and revitalizing the environment. And that message, open your heart, is so simple that maybe one of the keys to the climate crisis is calling on people to reconnect with nature and open their hearts to the natural world. Yeah, completely. Because then it gives nature a real value. You know, it's not something that's abstract that you watch on TV or flick through nice pictures on Instagram. Once you reconnect, it really has a value. And often I talk about value of nature being an economic value to you know an economy but the value it has to you personally is really important the thing I love about what you do and what you write about in your book and and what comes across on your podcast is the element of positivity because I think that is so important and so powerful particularly when it comes to environmental messages because you know everyday stresses in life and people are busy and kids and all the rest of it and thinking about the climate crisis is always seen as doom and gloom but actually approaching it with a real positive attitude it just leads to more positivity and change as well 
Mm, yeah. And it's like, what are we trying to fight to save, right? Yeah. It's like, yeah. You have to love something to want to save it. And I think that approach to environmentalism for me has been one. Of course, there's been moments where I've freaked out and get overwhelmed by the science and the data, et cetera. But it's also been a journey that's been hugely rewarding to me because it's been one of kind of falling in love with nature and with the world that's worth saving. And that's been, for me personally, a very, very kind of rewarding way to approach thinking about environmentalism. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And for you, what have been sort of the promising signs that you've seen that there's been real positive change? So many. I mean, the reality is the science is getting scarier. So I've been working in this space for nearly two decades now, which is kind of crazy to think about. And the science is definitely getting scarier and scarier and the scientists are getting more kind of desperate in their pleas for action. And I think, you know, that's part and parcel of activists getting more eco-anxiety and the kind of fear aspects we've seen. But alongside that, we have also seen a huge rise in environmental consciousness, whether it's the youth movement, the Extinction Rebellion type protest movements, or just general awareness. And more and more action from companies, kind of innovations, policymakers. And that was sort of what I was trying to chart in the book was that all of the different people in very different ways, whether it's in more capitalist ways or more protesty, activisty ways or indigenous wisdom, all of the different groups and ideas that are out there and that are gaining momentum in ways that people are trying to deal with this crisis, many of which seem to have a lot of momentum. And that to me gives me a lot of yeah, hope that even though we're in a scary predicament, there are a ton of people trying to solve this. And, you know, humans have achieved amazing things in the past. So I don't think it's an impossible task for us to be transformative, I guess, to rise the challenge of transforming. Um, transformation is the word that the scientists call for. Exactly. But Lily, you've got to have hope, haven't you? Because without that hope and positivity, people just give up the fight, don't they? You, you need to say, well, actually... There's a chink of light at the end of the tunnel, mm -hmm. but it's going to be hard work getting there, but we can get there. And even like, I mean, the last IPCC report, which is the big scientific report that comes out every few years from Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, was terrifying. And they still say there's a small but rapidly closing window of possibility that we can turn this around. You know, They still haven't sort of drawn a line on action and are still kind of calling for action because... You know, and I look out the window right now and, you know, the trees are there, the birds are there. There is still so much alive in nature that can be saved and regenerated. And actually nature is so regenerative. Like you, you leave a piece of land alone and the biodiversity will kind of spike up usually. So I think there is every chance that this can be turned around, but it does require transformation. And that's on us as the people who happen to be alive today in this weird moment in time to to play each of us more part in trying to do, I think. <laughs> yeah, give Mother Nature half a chance and it soon creeps back. I know that because I look at my veggie patches. If I, if I turn away for five minutes, they're covered in brambles and thistles and weeds. Mm, it, doesn't yeah. take, it doesn't take long and it's hard to repress life, but you've got to give it a chance. What about sort of um, activists that are out there really trying to make immediate change through demonstrations? You know, people like Extinction Rebellion. What do you think about those protests? I support all of the different ways that people, as long as they're non-violent, I support all the different ways that people are trying to enact change. And I think there isn't one perfect way to make change happen. And actually you need kind of a diversity of approaches. Uh, I went to one of the very early protests from Extinction Rebellion when they took over a few different bridges in London. 
And I found it such a moving event. I mean, it was so peaceful. There was a woman reading out a list of all the different animals that had gone extinct or on the brink of extinction. And I found the police quite sympathetic in that environment. I haven't been so involved in what they've done more recently, but I think in that initial moment in time, the tactics they employed were really effective. And I'd spoken actually at the Houses of Parliament around a similar time for a campaign that was encouraging the government to commit to net zero emissions by 2050. And a few months after that, the British government became one of the first, I think it was one of the first G7 countries in the world, so high income countries in the world to make, if not the first, to make that commitment to net zero emissions. And I don't think that was only because of the XR protests. There had been lots of other work kind of going on in the background to try and encourage policymakers to go in that direction. But in my own personal opinion, convinced that the pressure that XR put and the media attention they generated in that time period really helped with that tipping point to make that commitment. And since then, many other countries around the world have also made that commitment. So I do think that type of activism can be effective. It can also have a backlash, as we've seen. And sometimes it's been employed in a way that's maybe not entirely helpful and has alienated ordinary people in the public from, quote, environmentalists. And I don't think that's helpful because I think we all need to identify ideally with environmentalists as opposed to seeing them as some kind of other being. (laughs) Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more because when you listen to the speeches given and you talked about the lady reading out the list of species that have gone extinct, you know, that has an immediate effect and people get it. But often the portrayal of protests that are going on is just now, because we've seen it quite a lot, it's just a small little glimpse on the television. But then what you get is the ordinary people trying to get to work or, Mm. God, these guys are getting in the way, they're gluing themselves to the road. And then it can be counterproductive because they do then see, the general public then do see them as some sort of fundamentalist group. But actually they're not, they're just everyday folk that know there's something terrible happening and this is the only way that they can get their voices heard. As I said, I think it was incredibly effective in that moment in time and has made some tangible changes in policies. But I think that it's not necessarily a tactic that's always useful or is useful today. And it is so important that we, I think, help people realise that this is something that's collective and that is for everyone's benefit and that we can all be part of rather than feel alienated from as a movement. At the same time, I do get that people feel really desperate, you know. Um, I just realised I swore, are you going to put like a a sheet bar over me? 100%, 100%, (laughs) that's all covered. Good, I'm going to swear more. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. Um. (laughs) I love it. Do you know, when I was explaining the process that we have for bleeping out swear words to Jamie, because Jamie swears quite a lot, and uh, I was going, so listen, you just crack on, and then we bleep it out, but with an animal noise. And then he said to me, well, I've got to make an animal noise every time I swear. I was like, no, no, you totally don't get the concept. You don't have to moo. I'll put the mooing on. You should have let him do that. That would be quite funny. <laughs> I should have known. Just, have his penance at the end of the recording. Be like, okay, we need eight moos and two bars. <laughs> or you just see him on his new show, just barring, barring and mooing on his, on his next show. That's funny. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. But going back to the protesters, you can see their immediate action, but everyone can make changes in their life. What, what things have you done to, I suppose, change your lifestyle or what you do to benefit the environment? I will answer that, but just one thing to say on the XR protest actions before we round that up yeah. is that last week I was supporting a protester called Angus Rose who went on hunger strike for 37 days outside the Houses of Parliament with a fairly reasonable request, I'd say, which is that the chief scientific advisor, uh, Patrick Vallance, had given a scientific briefing to Boris Johnson about the climate crisis, which Boris Johnson had later said was his kind of road to Damascus moment of awakening or whatever. Yeah. And Angus's request was that that briefing, that scientific briefing that was done in private was made public and that was available to all MPs and members of the public. So essentially, so we just have more transparency on the science, I guess, and the science that needs to inform the policies. And so, yeah, he went on hunger strike for 37 days. And thank God, because I think he said he was going to go through to the end if needed. Wow. And after 37 days, I think Caroline Lucas helped organize that there will be a briefing. And hopefully, you know, we will see that happen. I mean, that is real commitment, isn't it? 37 days. Yeah. And he was willing to die. And I believe that, you know, because had there not been intervention, he would have carried on. I think that the level of desperation that many people feel and many activists feel, especially those who are deep in the science of this, is reaching that point. You know, is reaching a point where people are willing to risk their liberty and be arrested, willing to kind of risk their lives. And it's pretty powerful. And then if you kind of absorb that, then it's harder to judge the tactics of protesters as long as they're nonviolent, because it's understanding that it's coming from a real place of fear. Absolutely. And I mean, that is really powerful to go on hunger strike for 37 days is unbelievable because that is all based on the science of our changing climate. I'll tell you what you don't see, though. You don't see any hunger strikes from uh, climate deniers, though, do you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you don't see that level of commitment. I've never heard of any climate denier gluing themselves to the floor or, or going on a hunger strike. Well, because the stakes are very different, right? Yeah, completely. Yeah. The stakes of ignoring the science is an existential threat that then threatens. I mean, in this case, the case of Angus Rose, he was talking about his nephews, you know, it threatens 
children and you know many children alive today but children next generation etc um, many people alive today in, in particular countries that are already being impacted by climate change so the existential threats are very very high whereas the existential threat for climate deniers it's like climate action is not actually going to threaten their lives it might threaten their revenues it might threaten their business it might threaten their yeah, lifestyles yeah, yeah completely it's not going to threaten their lives and it's all tied up with this whole conspiracy theorists and stick your head in the sand, business as usual. And, you know, you're putting the whole of the planet at risk by having that attitude, in my opinion. The idea of going, oh, it's not happening. This is claptrap. It's been put out there as conspiracy. It's like, are you insane? Are yeah. you insane? People are willing to die for this. It makes me think of that wager that's like sort of a joke one, but the thing of like, well, it's worth believing in God because if it's wrong, then you're not going to lose anything. But if you're right, then you're not going to go to hell. <laughs> and they call it Pascal's wager. Um, it's more like a, it's more tangible version of that, I think. It's like, worst case scenario. Yeah. But I've met climate deniers and, and they are a funny old bunch because no one wants climate change. It's not like I'm, I'm in this gang because we believe in climate change. It's the denial is crazy. It's just like, what are you thinking? But they're like zealots over it. I came across one, the very, very end of writing my book. And my whole book is about trying to speak to people with different opinions on these topics, of which is a can of worms when you go into the environmental debate, because there's lots of different opinions on everything. And I tried to invite that kind of dialogue and diversity. But the one area I didn't look at was climate denial, because I sort of just take it as a given that we're going to accept the science. There's so much, it's about over 99% of scientists agree on the science. It's pretty clear. But then just by accident, someone I was interviewing at the very, very end of the process turned out to be a little bit of a climate denier and was sort of doubting the, the science in quite an intelligent, disarming way. And for a few days, I felt really great. I was like, oh my gosh, maybe it's not as bad as we think. This would be amazing. And I had a real like bubble of hope. And then I spoke to a few different climate scientists at Cambridge and sent over all of his reasonings and arguments and logic. And unfortunately, they sort of just managed to very cleverly dissect it all and show why it was all flawed. And that bubble quickly burst and I went back to being pretty committed to the, to the mainstream <laughs> scientific position. But it was interesting just yeah. to see the temptation because it would be so nice if it was not really as bad as the scientists say. And I think all of us maybe have a kind of, or many of us have a kind of inner climate denial that's going on daily because if we didn't have that, it would be quite hard to operate in daily life. And so we all have to be a little bit in denial. It can't be as bad as they're saying. I know. I suppose there is the element of denial maybe coming out of hoping it isn't too bad. Exactly. But the changes you've made personally then, what have you done to say, right, these are the changes I'm going to make in my life to have an impact to try and reduce climate change? Sure. So first, before I answer this, I always like to say that I'm not perfect and that's so important to establish and that I think it's almost impossible to be perfect in this society and that we're all kind of varying degrees of hypocritical and we sort of have to accept that and embrace that in order to make changes. And also the onus shouldn't be on individuals, even though individuals have a huge role and responsibility to play, it shouldn't be wholly on individuals as it seems to have often been that we need system change that makes it much easier for individuals. That being said, I'm mostly vegan. And I think diet is one of the main ways that we can look about kind of influencing the systems that we operate in on a daily basis. And I'm trying more and more to look towards seasonal. I mean, I've, I've long supported organic wherever I can, but also seasonal. Uh, it was interesting going around a supermarket the other day and trying to shop seasonally in the UK and finding it's just so hard. It was like Kenya, Peru, like Morocco, Israel, like it was just like the whole world represented and actually trying to seek out 
UK-based produce in April was quite a challenge. It wasn't impossible, but it was a challenge. So diet is a big one. Um, I've been looking at the sustainable fashion space for a long time and try to like support brands that are trying to produce things in a better way in fashion, but also in other industries. So if I'm buying a product, I will try and look to see if there's a company that's trying to produce it in a more mindful way or buy secondhand and also repair things. So trying to reduce waste and reduce consumption. That's interesting. Yeah. Repairing and reducing waste because the food waste is a huge issue and it's more polluting than plastic. Mm-hmm. And we never think of that. And when we talk about diets, we think, oh, okay, I'm going to vegetarian or vegan, or whatever else. But I think if we started with food waste, just, you know, as a place is really important. I think half the food that we grow is wasted, which is crazy. I think on Project Drawdown, this nonprofit that did this kind of analysis of all the different climate solutions and kind of had a best-selling book off the back of it. I think if I remember right, and you can maybe check this, but I think food waste comes out number one as like the number one area of potential impact that can be improved. And it's all different areas of the chain. So as you say, it's something like, I think it's about a third or maybe it's half of food that's grown is never actually makes it to the plate or is wasted. And then also if you don't compost, a lot of food that's thrown away ends up going to landfill and producing methane in landfill. But conversely, if you were to compost, it actually becomes, I'm sure you know from your farming, a climate solution because the soil can then get healthier and better at sequestering carbon. So food, yeah, food and food waste is a super interesting area to look at. Yeah, and particularly when you look at, say, it's often put out there, we've got to feed the world, but yet there are more obese people than are malnourished. And we're wasting half the food that we grow. It's like, geez, it's just simple. And, and the waste, it can be in the farmer's field because, you know, the runner beans are too curly. They're not nice and straight. Mm. Uh, there tends to be not a lot of waste in the supermarkets because they've got it down pat in terms of what comes in and goes out and they don't want to deal with the waste that's often put onto the farmer's. But it's then the consumers, you know, we're sucked in by the buy one, get one free. Mm. And of course, you don't need to buy one, get one free because half it just sits in the fridge and goes off and and we waste a lot at home. So I think food waste is a massive issue. And that's something that everyone can do at home. Because the other thing with this is that people often feel powerless. What can I do? What can I do to make a big difference? And I think there are one or two things you can do, very simple things like the way that you shop, but also mending stuff. I think I love that. But also the food waste is really, really big. The other thing I just want to quickly talk about is that on your podcast, I think what you do really well, and you just mentioned it earlier about when it comes to climate and the issues around climate, there's so much information out there and so much of it can be really conflicting. And it's trying to make sense of all this because you can have information overload when it comes to these issues. I think you do it really well. I mean, do you find it quite a difficult thing to tie all together? (laughs) That's a good question. The podcast came off the back of the book and the book was a huge labor of love. I mean, it took a lot of energy and time to dig into. And once I'd made that decision to cover different areas, but also to try and cover different points of views, there is a lot to cover. (laughs) But yeah, that felt like the approach that felt right to me. And then with the podcast in the initial season, I tried in every episode to look at a topic from different points of view. So case in point being food, there's an episode on meat because it interested me in the research that it's one of the most polarized areas of environmental debate, you have some environmentalists who are kind of absolute on the idea that we need to be vegan. We need to basically just stop using animal products, period. And that would have this transformative effect on land use, biodiversity, uh, carbon and methane levels in the atmosphere. And then you also have a contingent of environmentalists who argue that actually animals can be a very important part of regenerative farming practices and that there is a version of 
animal produce. Um, I interviewed Isabella Tree, who has Nepestate, which is kind of rewilded piece of land, and they sell they sell some of the wild animals for meat off of the land as a way to sustain it. Like her argument would be that that version of producing meat is helpful to environments. So I tried to dive into kind of the different angles on that topic, and I did that in other episodes too. In the new season we're working on now, I've tried to make my life a little bit easier because interviewing four <laughs> or five people per episode and editing together was a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> and so we're, I'm sort of still taking that approach across the season. So bringing in different perspectives across the season, but probably keeping just it to the one or two voices per episode. And that's been really nice actually so far. I mean, I'm sure you know from your work, it's just quite nice to chat to people <laughs> um, and hear different perspectives. It's lovely. It's a lovely format. Yeah. Completely. It's a lovely format. And I read a lot about this subject matter and you can feel that you're just suddenly swamped and you're like, hang on, is this the right answer? Is this... mm. And you do it really well. And I think that it's lovely to see the balance brought forward because otherwise I think what happens is that you end up getting a divide between camps you know yeah. to you end up with extremes on both sides and we don't need any more fighting you know if you've got 100%. a band of vegans and you've got a band of regenerative farmers we don't need that fighting what we need is solutions and i think that's what's really important about your podcast and probably the solution is somewhere between the two of them the more veganism you have the less meat consumption the more better meat consumption there might be such as regenerative farming completely and so i sort of interested in how we can bring these different perspectives together because ultimately we are all in this together and I'm less interested in being right or like who's right or wrong I think anybody thinks they're right is usually wrong because it's so complex completely and I mean I'm not a vegan by any stretch of the imagination but I think vegans are the best shoppers and we can all learn from the way they shop because they read every bit of information on there and that's what we all need to do you know and I call myself a vegan because I often break my veganism not often, but I do break my veganism occasionally. I'm not absolute about it, but I try to be really mindful about not supporting industrial animal agriculture because that to me feels just really wrong on multiple levels. And so, you know, today on my walk here to do this with you, that I walk past an egg basket, like a local farmer's obviously got like the eggs they sell outside. And I trust that the way they're looking after their chickens in that environment, in kind of the middle of nowhere, would probably be quite nice. And so I'd be very happy to pick up those eggs, yeah. you know? Um, yeah, that for me personally feels the approach that feels right to me. Um, would be like less animal products, but just being much more mindful about how we're looking after animals and also just remembering they're also sentient beings. Exactly. That, <laughs> that aren't commodities, yeah. I know, and you just talked about on the way to do the podcast today is that you went for a walk. So for you, getting out into the environment is really important. But what are the special places in nature for you? What are the areas, special places that you go to and go, oh my God, that is just, that's where I get my fix? Well, I live nowadays in Portugal and I'm very lucky because Portugal's got amazing nature, whether it's the beaches, the mountains, Alentejo, which is a kind of like drier farming area inland. You're just kind of spoilt for choice with access to nature being in Portugal. When I'm in the UK and having lived most of my life in the UK, I have a particular love of Sussex, I think, because of the forests there. And as I mentioned, the kind of bluebells are amazing. And I feel like it's quite wild and yet in quite close proximity to London. And I'm in Scotland for this recording and I just walked to the beach and oh my God, the beaches in Scotland. 
Who knew? Incredible. Like, if you Incredible. Don't, you don't put your foot in the water and discover it's ice, you, you might think you're in the Bahamas. <laughs> I was just about to say, yeah, it's deceptive. <laughs> Scotland does that to you. You go, oh, my God, this is amazing. I, the times I've been and go, this is just, it's, it's a beautiful turquoise. And you get in and you're like, oh, my God, I can't get out. I'm so freezing cold. But it is beautiful. And we've got to remember that. We are blessed. And, and nature isn't far away wherever you are i think even in the cities if you can find a little green space and just to sit and look up at a tree mm. just for five minutes has an amazing effect but um oh, it's lovely you've had a nice little walk then yeah 100 percent. and it's what i do i mean i travel with my work i've tried to travel less these days but i still travel for my work and wherever i go i always try and seek out nature and that's an amazing thing that it's different everywhere and that it is everywhere you know and it doesn't take long to seek a bit out and also, we are nature. We are nature. There's no getting away from it. I always have to remind myself not to talk about it as some like far away, distant thing that we arrived to. Like, we are nature. Some abstract thing. But also for you now, nature isn't boring anymore. Being that child that was like, I found it a bit boring, it couldn't be further from the truth now. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it'd be very disappointing if I told you I still thought nature was boring, right, after this chat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I'm just waiting for it to come. I go. Actually, Jim, it's really boring and a bit muddy. Oh my god! There's like a gorgeous little bird. I think it's a tit with a yellow belly and a blue head just flew by. Yeah, nature definitely isn't boring. Yeah, <laughs> it's just always, always there to please. It's incredible. Oh, and sorry. One last thought I'll share go, go on. on that point when you asked about what I'm doing. So I think a lot of my environmentalism in the past has been very theoretical. You know, writing the book, trying to campaign and lobby politicians. Looking at supply chains is a big thing of what I've looked at in fashion and other industries. And what I'm really feeling called to these days and in hopefully the years to come is to try and make that passion be more tangible. And so look at kind of having more of a direct relationship to land and regeneration. And I'm not sure where that path will take me, but I feel that calling really strongly. And I think it's going to be great. Well, that's really important because there's the difference between you know, talking the talk and walking the walk. And there's so many environmentalists and, and journalists that I know that will berate vegans or harangue farmers uh, but actually getting out there and doing it yourself is so important mm. and that's fantastic to hear i can't wait to see your plans <laughs> see some pictures of me some muddy feet swimming swimming <laughs> in the coastline of scotland be perfect perfect <laughs> listen, listen Lily, it's been absolutely fantastic thank you so much for coming on my pleasure have a lovely day and you see you soon there we go that was the lovely Lily Cole. Please check out her podcast, Who Cares Wins. It is really, really good. It's fantastic. She really gives a wonderful balance to lots of complicated issues and really makes it easy to understand for people like me. Um, really enjoyed that chat and it just shows you the power of positivity. So more power to your elbow, Lily. Uh, and hopefully I'll catch up with you again soon. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe. Leave your comments wherever you get your podcast because it really does help other listeners find us. And I'll see you all back on the farm for another episode of On Jimmy's Farm. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.